What does it mean to write a book about the death of your own brother? You're listening to the Explain Ukraine podcast. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist and chief editor of Ukraine World. My guest today is Olesya Hromeychuk, a Ukrainian historian and head of the Ukrainian Institute in London. She is also the author of a very honest book, The Death of a Soldier Told by His Sister, in which she tells the story of her brother Volodymyr, killed by the Russians on the front line in the eastern part of Ukraine back in 2017. In this episode, I speak with Olesya about her experience of writing this book and working with the pain of the loss. We also talk about the presentation of Ukrainian culture abroad and about the most important entry points into Ukrainian literature and history. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support our work at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We provide exclusive content for our patrons. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. You can find these links in the description of this episode. Welcome to this podcast. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Volodymyr. It's an honor. So let us start from, from your book. Uh, you wrote a book about the loss of your beloved uh, brother, uh, Volodymyr, uh, who was killed by the Russians in 2017. And uh, I read this book. This is an incredible book and I really advise to everybody to read it. It's available in English, but also in French, but also is now in Ukrainian. But I assume that it is a very difficult to write a, this kind of book when, when you lost uh, such a close person to you. Uh, and you kind of uh, probably was going through lots of this internal fight with this internal silence. Can you describe this uh, this experience? Sure. Thank you for asking me. Um, so it was it was the sort of book that was impossible to write and impossible not to write. Uh, I I never thought of writing that book. Um, I never thought of describing my brother's loss. Um, I in fact I didn't talk about it in public for quite a long time, because I'm a researcher of war. I'm a historian, and I was really nervous about being perceived as a fallen soldier's sister, rather than um, and having my work perceived in that way as well, professional work, rather than based on this professional merit. So I kept it quiet uh, for, a, for a while, and then uh, and then I couldn't keep it quiet anymore. And I felt that I absolutely had to process that loss in some way, especially um, it's worth reminding that in 2017, when my brother was killed, nobody was talking about the war in eastern Ukraine. Uh, occupation of Crimea was referred to in the West in the discussions that I participated in as a done deal. And if you talked about it, if you, if you raised 
raised that question, you were looked at as some kind of hysterical Ukrainian woman who's talking about something that should be forgotten and let go of. Uh, so yeah, it was uh, it was a it was a forgotten war. Uh, so when I started writing, I started writing first for my theater company as a potential um, documentary theater piece. Um, it was um, you know it was just sketches that I that I was using to process my own trauma. Um, and for that, it was ex extremely powerful as an experience of writing, as an experience of processing. The very first sketch I wrote was about trying to find the right pair of boots for my brother. Um, and uh, it's the, when it became part of the theater play, um, uh, the audiences were really surprised that Ukrainians um, buy their own provisions for soldiers uh, at the front line. So it's the kind of peculiarity of the war in Ukraine that was completely um, unfamiliar to audiences abroad. And and once we started to perform that piece, I understood that by talking about uh, grief, a universal experience, something that people can really relate to, uh, I can I can sort of penetrate the discussion about the war, the forgotten war. I can begin to explain um, Russia's war against Ukraine, that it is Russia that is fighting, that it is Russia that's meddling in our in our business. Um, because at that point, it seemed too complicated, too complex, too difficult to get your head around. Um, and the media space, in at least in English. Uh, uh, language publications was heavily influenced influenced by the Kremlin propaganda. So it was often referred to as a uh, not just a conflict, but a, as, a, as a civil war, as an internal conflict and so on. So this gave me an opportunity to to explain the complexity of this war and, and the, the truth about this war. And once I understood that, you know, if, if the play functions, perhaps a manuscript with, with more information and more detailed information and more contextual information would also uh, enable me to speak about this war. And of course, it, as, as is often the case uh, with, with, with many aspects of, uh, of Ukrainian history and culture and so on, once Russia began its full-scale invasion, uh, the book attracted uh, attention of a large publisher, British publisher, who offered to issue a new edition of the book, an extended edition of the book, where I, I, I added several chapters uh, that I wrote since the full-scale invasion. I think the, uh, the very strong element of, of your story is how practical and material it is. So when you describe the searching for, for your brother Boots, or, or you describe how you pack this uh, bag for him, or you describe how this person who knew him, who is called Kola, uh, first recognized him as a, as a soldier on TV by the, um, by the ammunition that, uh, that you bought together with him. And uh, this is the way how to penetrate into into the story of this war through this very particular humane details. And I think this is very often what is lacked in 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 the account of of this war about Ukraine, uh, of this war, of Russian invasion of Ukraine in the foreign media. So people talk about it in very abstract terms. They talk about war. They talk about fallen soldiers, but they don't talk about it in, in this uh, very material way. Yeah. And uh, did you have like like feedback from people like, yes, thanks to this story, we, we finally understand what is going on? Hmm. 
Um, yeah, just briefly on, on, on objects and materiality. I mean, I don't know if it's my historian's hat or my uh, theater maker's hat that was really drawn towards uh, the various objects and the description of them, not just the boots, but I also tried to piece together. Um, we received Volodya's belongings from the front line. Actually, Maria Berlinska, a famous Ukrainian volunteer, um, brought them for us. The, the bag that uh, that Volodya's comrades packed for us with his belongings, she brought it to her cave flat and we went through that bag together on her kitchen floor uh, and decided what to keep and what to give back to the volunteers so it could be used again. A very peculiar experience. Um, a kind of, you know, sort of material way of going through grief, literally piece by piece of your loved one's life. And I was really desperate to piece my brother's life together using these bits and pieces that remained. And, and I kept wondering to myself, well, what, what does remain once the person is gone? What is it that we have? Okay, so I had some documents, uh, I had some um, unused uh, train tickets, for instance, that he had, or uh, his death certificate, or his passport. Uh, or a helmet liner that was pierced uh, with shrapnel that killed him. Um, and, and, and is that is that enough? Is that what is left of my brother? And of course I realized that what is left is a gap that can never be filled. Uh, absolutely never, and this book will never fill it either. But, 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 the, but the story that I tell myself and I tell others is, is a story that is larger than my brother's life, is a story that is life that was cut short by... Uh, Russia's war against Ukraine. So do people uh, tell me that they understand, that they certainly understand something. One thing that the piece of feedback that I keep getting recently is, um, uh, since the publication of the second edition of the book, is that we've understood that you guys have been fighting for nearly 10 years. Uh, for so many outside of Ukraine, uh, the war began on the 24th of February 2022. And it's really important to remind people that uh, this war has been going on since 2014. Um, and and also not just to remind that you know the Ukrainians have been fighting since 2014, but that Russians have been tolerated as uh, some kind of peace brokers that they've pretended to be since 2014, that they've enjoyed impunity, that they've benefited from war crimes that they've been perpetrated and to ask to ask western audiences to reflect on this and on their own role i often ask people to think about the word neutrality in in a conflict like this it's such a comfortable place to sit and say well we're neutral you know we will will support you with some humanitarian aid and so on but you know at the beginning as you'll remember people were so nervous politicians were so nervous about supporting ukraine with weapons and and this was translating into very real consequences that were deaths of people, um, unnecessary deaths of, of Ukrainian citizens. So reminding them that people have died already before 2022, uh, and, and now they're dying because there is no such thing as neutrality in this conflict. Neutrality means facilitation of escalation, facilitation of violence. It, I hope that it encourages self-reflection as well. You describe yourself in this book as a little sister, but also the big sister, right? <laughs> and uh, and uh, you are the the youngest among three. So your 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 brother uh, Volodya is the elder eldest one, but at the same time you describe the situation when you started taking care of him, when he decided to volunteer to the army, to the front line, and you started to collect. Uh, the things, the ammunition for him, starting well, not, from not the ammunition, didn't manage the ammunition, but provisions of various provisions, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, Sorry, maybe I, I, I used the wrong English word. Uh, but uh, 
your decision to write a book is it also a kind of continuation of this care <laughs> for you for, for for your brother that you you want to tell his story you want to kind of because a story is always a certain continuation of a life beyond beyond this life I haven't thought about it like that, Voldemort, but you're probably right. Uh, it probably is the desire to keep him alive, I guess. Uh, and not just him alive, but to continue the memory of people that have been lost, um, whether that's you know, servicemen and women or civilians who have been, whose lives have been so unfairly taken in this absolutely um, unprovoked war. Uh, is it my way of taking care of him? Perhaps. I'll have to think about it a bit more. You're, you're probably got onto something I haven't thought about. We just discussed uh, on a discussion here on Live Book Forum and uh, you stressed a very important thing about honesty mm. of uh, keeping the memory of, uh, of, of fallen soldiers, of uh, fallen civilians. And this is a problem, I think, uh, for memory uh, in our country. Mm, I remember, you know, how, the, for example, in the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. how we actually talked about the soldiers. It was over-idealizing them. So there was no, like, soldiers of the Second World War. Uh, and uh, there is this propaganda, which also Soviet propaganda, that will always portray a certain people as, you know, Soviet heroes without really talking about them. I remember uh, uh, one Ukrainian author right now, a Soviet Ukrainian writer, Anatoly Dimarov, who's now published his memoirs, and he described a story that he was working as a journalist after the Second World War, and he was tasked, uh, he was given a task to write a story about a woman who uh, actually lived through several rounds of torture by the, by the Nazi, and she survived. And uh, he came to the village and uh, he understood that this uh, woman actually was hiding from the Nazis, was not a remarkable woman at all. She was a very ordinary woman. And she wrote, he wrote this story. And then he, he was told by the newspaper that this is a wrong story. It's not the way how you should describe it. And they published a piece, absolutely, absolutely uh, fake story absolutely made up that this woman was a head of the partisan you know um, uh, group etc and uh, you insist that the, the, the memory of the of the of the people who died uh, who were killed should be honest uh, what do you mean by that it's a big question I'm still trying to work out what I mean by that I guess but I, I want to pick up on something that you just said that she was an ordinary woman and not remarkable but I think ordinary people are very remarkable and if we think about our lives uh, and try and place them on a on a time time scale of uh, you know of, of a history textbook that that precedes uh, uh, yeah, the, the, the precise the narrative of uh, centuries then of course it's going to be a drop in the ocean and it's going to be um, seemingly unimportant but if we want to understand uh, human experience of of something so um, unimaginable as war and yet something that is so commonplace as, as war because obviously wars have been fought constantly everywhere around the world then we absolutely need to look at uh, experiences of so-called in inverted commas unremarkable ordinary people because that is how wars are being experienced uh, it's easy to uh, focus on those who are in the limelight um, who are political leaders, uh, who are military commanders, um, but 
but that only tells us a little bit of the story of the war. I mean, my in my professional scholarly work, I've been looking at experiences of women um, in the Second World War and also in this war since 2014. Um, and, you know, th that shows you that if we don't look at these seemingly marginal experiences, we, we miss out 50% of the population and how they experience the war. So it's extremely um, vital that we uh, we expand our attention to, to all uh, human stories. And perhaps that's what I mean by honesty. So that doesn't mean that I don't value the heroic action of the people who go to fight, whether they are called up or they volunteered to fight. My brother volunteered. Um, he volunteered because it wasn't, he wasn't called up. He was expected to be called up, but, but somehow the draft didn't come. Um, it, it does not belittle their uh, heroic actions. It does not belittle the sacrifice that they make, the uh, absolutely unbelievably cho brave choices that they make, but simplifying their lives, trying to fit them into some kind of template, uh, does them a big disservice, I think. And if we want to show our respect uh, for, uh, for for our defenders, for especially for, for those who have lost their lives in this war, um, and for civilians too, we need, I think we need to show that respect by maintaining the complexity of their life, by telling their stories in full, by showing them um, for the people that they were, um, and so that the rest of us can identify with them. And let's face it, uh, you know, we're not none. Very few of us. Okay, I won't say none, <laughs> but very few of us are remarkable <laughs> or have remarkable lives. But I think it's really important that. Um, um, any service women or man when they open um, a, a, an obituary, and the obituaries are what I think Ukrainians' news feeds consist of at the moment, social media feeds consist of right now, uh, can, can identify with the person and not feel um, inadequate um, in the light of that heroic narrative that they read in an obituary. I think the best <clears throat> the best thing to identify is to really remember some tiny details, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, that probably characterized this person and um, made this person different from others. Yeah, sense of humor we were talking about yeah. earlier in the in the discussion. Absolutely, I mean that's one thing that lingers, I think, for a long time, and it's a beautiful thing to to keep in your heart. <laughs> Yeah, we just were discussing that, for example, the story of Victoria Melina, who uh, our listeners uh, surely know because we, we made a podcast about her, but how hilarious she was. And uh, I remember when we were in, in the Dnipro hospital next to her lying in her last days without conscious in a coma, we actually was sharing her jokes and uh, and uh, our jokes uh, about death as well. So this is also remarkable how Ukrainians make jokes about death, right? It's a coping mechanism, isn't it? I think our memes are now uh, famous all around the world. I mean, uh, uh, the one about Russian uh, warship and telling it where to go, I think everybody knows it now. <laughs> You're living in London. You're director of Ukrainian Institute in London. And uh, this is a... A uh, very important cultural institution, uh, and uh, I've been several times in London only, but I've uh, um, we talked with Marina Pesenti, and uh, I remember my how, predecessor. Yes, your predecessor, and how how powerful it is. Um, and uh, viewed from Ukraine, um, London and, and Great Britain is of course one of the key allies, and uh, we have 
so much of empathy from uh, from the British society and also help. But also we are entering uh, in the period of, I hate this word, but this Ukraine fatigue. And uh, as we discussed earlier, as you said also, uh, we, we, we Ukrainians do, do not have a right for any fatigue, but it exists in the world. And um, I'm sure that books as yours are really are capable of bringing this attention as well because they're so much personal and so so emotional but uh, how how should we talk about this war now because uh, um, I do remember when in years like 2017 2018 we were sometimes invited for discussions in Germany France or Britain about the forgotten war mm -hmm. and I have the fear that now this war can also be forgotten, what mm. do you think? Yeah, I was uh, terrified to hear um, a week ago at a literary festival just outside of London, somebody asked me a question and they referred to the war as a frozen conflict. Uh, and that's the first time I heard it uh, in this stage of full-scale war. Uh, it's a very important question. I, I think I'd like to start with a slightly bigger picture, and that's not just how to talk about war, but how to talk about Ukraine, because Ukraine truly appeared on the mental maps of the world, most parts of the world, on the 24th of February 2022, just as Russia was trying to wipe it off that map. And for that reason, unfortunately, for that reason. So the, the people started to discover Ukrainian culture precisely because Russia was trying to destroy it. Um, and so it created a certain sense of clear visibility of Ukraine. Everybody now knows what the shape of the map is, uh, the outline. Uh, most people know how to spell Kyiv correctly. <laughs> uh, everybody dropped the before Ukraine, finally. Um, not everybody. Oh, most people, <laughs> right? Yeah, you're right. Not everybody. Still, still work to be done. Um, but I am not entirely sure if visibility translates into understanding. Um, because some stereotypes were replaced by other stereotypes, in my view. That's my observation. Um, so if before nobody knew who Ukrainians really were, we were confused with Russians or just lumped into this kind of sea of East Europeans that all speak roughly the same language. Um, now I think the, the new stereotype is very positive. It's a stereotype of extremely brave people, uh, of this kind of Cossack nation, um, underdog, uh, very appealing stereotype, you know, um, uh, underdog that's not afraid of a large bully um, that puts up a fight. And that's that's great, but it, the roots of that experience, the reasons for the bravery and courage the Ukrainians are showing, uh, isn't understood. I don't think our culture is being explored appropriately yet. And that's going to take a really long time. Russia has done a lot to um, fill every possible space with its soft power. And I can see it in the UK very clearly, but 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 elsewhere even, even more clearly perhaps than, than in Britain. Um, so on the one hand, we need to undo that. We need to encourage critical assessment of Russia itself so people start seeing Russia for what it is and not for what we imagined or wanted to imagine it to be. And on the other hand, obviously, we need to highlight our own culture. Uh, we need to make sure that centers for East European and Slavic studies are centers for East European and Slavic studies and not centers for Moscow studies or Russian studies. Uh, so we need structural changes. We need this institutional, um, we need the, the situational um, interest to change into institutional change. It's, the, the will is there. I can 
see it. I, I don't feel that there is fatigue. Um, but it's, um, Vitaly Chernesky speaks really wonderfully about it. He talks about different types of uh, epistemic exploitation uh, that exist. It's, it, it's expected from us Ukrainians to provide answers, to call out uh, mistakes, uh, to explain, for instance, how a center for Eurasian and Russian studies should be now renamed, <laughs> to come up with a new name, to do all that labor. Um, and a lot of us obviously embrace that role and we provide those answers, but I think we also need to continue this critical discussion. And that will help people maintain interest in Ukraine and discover it um, in depth and not just superficially, and therefore not get tired of war. And one way, I think, to remind everybody that this war is a shared war and we can't afford, none of us can afford to, to tire of it, is to, to, to explain that without lasting peace in Ukraine, there will be no lasting peace in Europe. Um, in the whole region. And once you begin to explain that, uh, somehow all the discussions about concession and peace without really thinking what this what peace means for Ukrainians, they, they fade and, and people begin to ask you concrete questions. Okay, so how do we ensure that this peace is lasting? How do we talk about justice? Uh, what do we need to do to contribute to this uh, European security and restore it because it's broken? When we say, uh, I try to say uh, very often in Europe that this is our common war, and I'm not sure that people really get it or people really accept it. So very often maybe, and this is very important, that they help Ukraine and they help it financially, they help it with ammunitions, they help it with arms, but it is still perceived as a kind of a humanitarian aid, right? As, a, as, a, as an aid to the country that is struggling for its sovereignty, nothing more. Do you think that um, the idea that this is a common war, a war of Europe, but certain vision of Europe, not imperialist Europe or post-imperialist Europe, Europe, which tries to also work with its imperial past, and not often very successfully, not often understanding that it was also very imperialist and brutal mm -hmm. in the 19th century, in the 20th century, as Russia is today. So it also invites lots of conversation of Europe mm -hmm. about itself. But do you think that this, is, this resonates, that this is our common war? And, uh, and uh, it's like... It's like Ukrainians who are in the rear and not on the front line need to understand that, of course, we are a common organism. And, and if we forget about people who are on the rear, if we forget to donate, if we forget to search for equipment, if we forget to search for cars for our soldiers, as we do, uh, then, yeah, we lose our role in this and we kind of uh, pretend that there is something dying, somebody dying for us instead of us. But do you think that this idea can be also transposed into the wider world? Yeah, I think the key word here is the wider world. Um, this conversation, I, I believe it's changed in Europe quite a lot. I think Europeans do realize that it's it's our shared war. Of course, they're not as invested in it as, as Ukrainians are. And maybe that's part of, you know... The taking taking liberties and freedoms for granted that uh, haven't been threatened for a very long time and taking institutions such as the EU and, and, and other institutions for granted. Um, but I, I, I think there is a re-evaluation 
of quite a lot of things, re-evaluation of perception of Russia, um, re-evaluation of concepts such as freedom. Um, whenever I talk to various audiences, I, you know, I ask them to define what freedom means for them. They struggle to define. And I then proceed to say, well, actually, Ukrainians won't struggle to define because they know what the opposite is. Uh, very clearly, they know what it means not to have freedom. Therefore, they know what it means to practice freedom. It's not abstract, lofty idea. It's something very um, concrete for us, something that we're so, that's why we're protecting it so keenly. And I know you had a wonderful discussion with Timothy Snyder about these various concepts of voila uh, and svoboda and uh, liberty, will and freedom uh, as all merged together. So certain um, soul searching is happening. Um, it's an ongoing process. But what I think is still lacking is a global conversation. Uh, and for that, I think we also need to do our homework and we need to understand what kind of parallels we can draw uh, with uh, specifically countries, uh, and I'm going to use this problematic term of the global south. Um, we uh, need to explain that Russia never ceased to be an empire, that this war is a new colonial war. I don't think enough work has been done on that. And once we engage into, and I know this dialogue is beginning at least now and is beginning to be more successful than before. Again, here we have to undo a lot of harmful work that Russia's already done, whether that's through bullying and mercenaries such as Wagner on the Af African continent or through um, soft power that they've invested elsewhere in um, around the world. But this global discussion is absolutely vital. And here, the role of North America, the role of the US, Europe, also has to be reevaluated because, uh, um, yeah, without that soul-searching, that dialogue and honesty, the key word that we've already used earlier today, will not be possible. Yeah, I think kind of Ukrainians uh, pose again a question of imperialism. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it's very important that we move away from the idea whose imperialism is worse. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, for us Ukrainians, Russian imperialism is worse than for American imperialism. But for many other parts of the world, it's the reverse picture. And we also need to understand this. But I do think that uh, we also need to kind of a push uh, our Western partners to understand that they are part of this imperialism. It's not about NATO expansion. It's it's about certain imperialism practices that, you know, that that Russian cop Russians copied at a certain moment. And um, and of course, this is um, important talk. And has absolutely influenced the way that Ukraine has been perceived for so long. Because I mean, let's be honest: London, New York, um, or Washington, uh, Paris, Berlin—they all listened to Moscow. They all spoke over Kiev's head, as it were. So you know, I, I will not forget that the most of our British correspondents were covering Maidan protests from Moscow. Only some came to Kiev. It's it's before the full-scale invasion that they flooded Kiev, and they were sitting there expecting the full-scale invasion. But before that. Uh, um, you know the the discussions. I I witnessed so many discussions about Ukraine with uh, absolutely zero, uh, not just U Ukrainians present on panels, but Ukraine specialists present on panels, and Russian has been more than happy to discuss Ukraine as if it's somehow part of their field of expertise. Uh, that has changed, uh, not entirely, but I very rarely see such panels. Uh, everybody, whether that's to tick a box or genuinely to seek information, everybody tries to have a Ukrainian voice <laughs> or, as part of the discussion, and that surely is a good thing. When you are asked uh, by English-speaking 
people or maybe not English-speaking people. What are the entry points into Ukrainian culture? You are as a director of Ukrainian Institute. You are having having to do with Ukrainian history, but also with Ukrainian theater, literature. What would you name? What would you name as a kind of a maybe place or, or texts or figures that will be the best introduction to Ukrainian culture? Yeah, this is a great question. So at the Ukrainian Institute London, we try to make Ukraine relevant to the world. So not just um, point out to the fact that there's gaps in knowledge, because there's gaps in knowledge about lots of parts of the world, right? Uh, but that Ukraine can tell us something that is crucial for our understanding of ourselves, right? So the, whether that's British society or, or, or any other society. Um, and a good example, I think, of that would be a production of Les Ukrainkas Cassandra. Uh, in I've English heard language. a lot about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. So we, we have this small translation Price and translation is vital in in explaining Ukraine uh, to the outside world. Um, we were talking yesterday at the forum again that you know the the little shelf on Ukraine has expanded uh, in bookshops around the world, but um, it's still mostly being filled with uh, outsider observers. Um, testimonies of the war. And it's mostly about the war, uh, as opposed to about Ukraine as a whole. We need to translate the knowledge that was uh, that appeared and um, was published inside the country for people to truly understand what goes on. So yeah, so our small contribution to that process is uh, is an annual translation prize. And last a couple of years ago, uh, we themed it around the 150th anniversary of Les Ukrainkas, uh, um, celebrating Les Ukrainkas works. And Nina Murray won it with an extract of uh, translation of Les Ukrainkas Cassandra. Then she went on to translate the entire piece. It's coming and the entire drama is coming out with uh, Harvard. Uh, um, Ukrainian Studies uh, Publishing House uh, soon. Um, and we at the Ukrainian Institute with um, a, a huge involvement, passionate involvement of my colleague Maria Montague uh, produced uh, uh, the performance, the staging of Cassandra for the first time in English in uh, uh, in London and then also in Oxford and in Cambridge. And that was a, a wonderful example of uh, explaining to people, look, these conversations about placing uh, feminist, modernist uh, conversations, rewriting uh, classics from the point of view of a woman who knows what's coming and nobody believes her. <laughs> you haven't read it, have you? <laughs> and it's part of European literary canon. Um, but you didn't know about it. Now is the time to discover it. And while discovering it, we can have conversations about post-truth, about uh, all of these complicated things that affect us. Um, another way of making Ukraine relevant is by talking about environment and uh, not just our legacy of Chernobyl, but also uh, ecocide that Russia is um, uh, perpetrating in Ukraine. Again, it's something that affects the globe. It affects uh, the global community. And yet uh, international environmental uh, activists are not very well aware about the situation in Ukraine. They need to be educated about it. And without that knowledge, they will be um, lacking understanding about the challenges that we all need to face as a global community. It's great that you mentioned uh, Lesio Kalinka. By, by the way, say hi to Maria Montague, who I know personally very well. Um, I also give Cassandra to my students and uh, at, at, the, at the course, Philosophy and Literature. 
And it's amazing how modern, how contemporary it is, because it, it's it's all the discussion about the truth be, between Cassandra and Helen, his um, his brother, her her brother. Uh, and uh, I think the, the readers will find it amazing. And also, I I agree with you that look, those people, well, we can also we can also talk about your book as a kind of a Cassandra's piece, you know. Uh, which which tries to bring back the memory uh, about this war to the international audience, and of course, people who were saying that the war is coming in in late 2021, early 2022, were kind of a Cassandra's. And my metaphor out of this play is that actually, Leslie Klink is telling us that we are all mad because the madness is when you see something and you don't want to believe in it, right? You don't want to uh, to truly accept it. But uh, I don't know whether you you discuss it in England, because for me, Lesa Ukrainka is a kind of a... I don't want to, uh, to make this parallels, but there are parallels with Shakespeare. Why? Because in Shakespeare, you have the this thinking in, in drama, right? This this understanding that the war has gone mad and, and the figure of this of this crazy, crazy characters. At the same time, he opens so much to the world culture and he brings all this world culture, ancient culture, Italian culture to England. And this is what Lesio Klink is doing for Ukrainian culture. So lots of her topics are actually going beyond the Ukrainian story. So you you have Cassandra, you have Rufine Priscilla, you have uh, a play about Greece and ancient Rome. And I think this an entry, this is a very interesting entry point. So how Ukraine enters the European culture and how you, European culture can enter Ukraine through this character. Absolutely. I'd just like to encourage you to be in conversation as soon as possible with a colleague of mine, Sasha Dovzhak, who has written very uh, well uh, in a very fresh and exciting way about Lesya Ukrainka and about her um, uh, critique of patriarchy uh, and the, the the rewriting of classics from the point of view of a woman. Um, and also who I believe might have been the, the one or at least one of the first people to have coined this uh, phrase of, you know, to, to describe those people who spoke about the war for the first eight years but were not listened to as modern-day Cassandras. So there you go, that's your next guest. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And um, at the same time, it's 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 also very interesting how we uh, like talk about the these issues and how, for example, Askol Melnichuk, a famous American writer, uh, wrote a piece about uh, forest song, Lisova Pisnia's environmentalist poem. So you, you have this also mixed in, into, so you, you have this idea of environment, which is, which is very, very important. Let me maybe come back to your book and uh, ask maybe a, a very difficult question, and this will be a final question. What is a loss? How you go through the loss? Because I remember you described those moments when you received the message about the the death of your of your brother, and you rather describe it. You, you were very focused. You were really focused on, on on what you do next. And then I assume that this coming coming later, and you start to realize it, and how you work with it, how your family works with it. Because why I'm asking? Because I mean, majority of Ukrainians are facing this. Yeah. We are losing family members. We are losing friends. 
and not necessarily on the front line. There is increasing number of deaths, unexpected deaths, who are indirectly related by the war because people are living in distress and just you see people just fading away. How to work with this? I will not claim to understand how other people experience loss and how they grieve because it's it's very unique to every single individual. I can only share my story and hope that some parts of my stages of grief can resonate with others and maybe normalize some of those extremely uncomfortable feelings that we feel and you know my story can serve as as a narrative that says it's okay to feel like that it happens that's that's what grief does to us it's a terribly shattering experience um i i think we often think of loss as um as emptiness as something and i already mentioned this earlier as something that can never be filled that is true to some degree but i've been recently rereading maria tomarkin's work she's a ukrainian jewish australian writer originally from kharkiv based in based in australia um and she in one of the interviews she referred to either grief or healing i can't remember which one as growing a new part of yourself and i could really understand that I could really recognize it because I think I've acquired through the loss of my brother I've acquired hmm, I've acquired sort of paths of thinking uh, parts of experience um, that I've not had before and she said something else recently she was in conversation uh, with me at the Ukrainian Institute in London we were talking about trauma escapes something that she's written about in the past um, and she was asked how to commemorate uh, these huge losses, how to begin to mm, commemorate something that is so traumatic um, and now the entire country is a trauma scape uh, if we talk about Ukraine. And she said something that will stay with me for some time. She said, we're so keen on doing something to these places, building something there, monuments, commemorating them in some kind of way. But it's important to let them do something to us. Uh, to be with them, to be present in them, and to see what they do to us and how they make us experience um, and how they can potentially encourage us to begin to heal. Uh, and maybe I'll uh, end on that thought. Olesya Hromychuk, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of ukraineworld.org. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Let me remind you that you can support our work at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We provide exclusive content for our patrons. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front lines at paypal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. You can find these links in the description of this episode. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.